we're back with the tech policy grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Welcome back to the Tech Policy Grind. I'm Evan Enzer. I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, and I'm the regular editor for this podcast. This week's episode is another edition of our Policy Hackathon webinar series, condensed and packaged into a podcast format for the show. If you're new to TPG and the Foundry, the theme for the upcoming Policy Hackathon is artificial intelligence. Running up to our annual event, the Foundry is hosting bi-weekly webinars diving into some of the nuances around law and policy topics that intersect with critical AI issues. Today's episode features a conversation led by fellow Lama Muhammad discussing bias within AI and potential ways to mitigate those harms. The panel featured Ji Hao Chen of Responsible AI LLC, Amber Zell, Policy Counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum, and Juhi Kuraya who works in the digital office of the United Nations Development Program. Together, these experts touched on defining AI bias, why bias is harmful, global AI policy developments, and more. I want to give a special thank you to all of our guests for joining the Foundry in our webinar series. You can follow them on LinkedIn to learn more about their work. And if you're a Rima superfan, don't worry. You'll hear from her again at the end of the show. Enjoy the episode. Good afternoon. My name is Lama Mohammed. And I'm my class four fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Today, we will dive, be diving deep into the world of artificial intelligence bias. This year, you cannot go a day without reading about artificial intelligence since the recent hype around generative artificial intelligence such as Dolly and ChatGPT. While innovation in AI creates new possibilities, the increased use of this technology does not eradicate previous issues with accountability, fairness, and transparency. Joining us today to discuss the top line topic are AI bias experts Jihao Chen, Amber Izel, and Juhi Kore. To start, I would like to ask our panelists what artificial intelligence is and what AI bias is as well, and some of the ways that it could cause harm to um, marginalized or vulnerable communities. Um, Amber, would you like to start us off? Yeah, sure. Um, so, to level set, um, AI systems are used in different, um, several different sectors um, to make decisions that impact people's lives. Um, so this includes housing, um, credit, hiring, uh, management, um, to name a few. And we've all probably interacted with artificial intelligence in some way. And so these systems um, are built on large quantities of data um, and often include data that is entrenched with historical bi- biases um, and discrimination. Um, And then um, they are used to train um, these systems in making decisions. And so the systems are also designed um, by organizations that can code them to behave in certain ways. Um, So this includes either like prioritizing or deprioritizing certain data points like those that um, are directly or indirectly related to protected classes. And so these um, design decisions um, can be made to either offset existing biases or um, further discriminate. 
Um, and so AI bias is essentially how artificial intelligence systems make or impact decisions um, that disproportionately harm uh, groups or individuals, um, usually around these protected statuses, like I just mentioned. So race, gender, sexual orientation, um, disability status, um, as some others. And um, if not accounted for, AI bias can reinforce um, and exacerbate communal, um, individual, and societal harms and harm individuals by um, denying them um, of important opportunities and prevent communities um, from receiving proper resources and support. Um, and one of the other things is that it can also limit um, societal innovation, which I'm sure that we'll talk about um, today. Um, so if it's not um, accounted for, it can reinforce discrimination um, and uh, harm individuals and communities. I, th I think that was a that was a great uh, uh, response, Amber. Um, so I also wanted to say, like, based on my maybe state something a little more concrete in terms of my experience in banking. Um, so it's uh, discrimination is obviously a very big part of uh, of AI bias, uh, but we also think about um, exclusionary effects. So things that are not directly about discriminating on the basis of race, gender, age, but also just the fact that maybe you're making a data-driven decision and there are people you don't have data about. So in the credit space, we talk about uh, people called credit invisibles. So people who uh, perhaps are new immigrants to the country or they don't have a family uh, tradition or history of having an existing relationship with a financial institution. And so these people don't have records on credit bureaus. Therefore, they don't uh, they don't exist as far as the data-driven credit-making uh, industry is concerned. Now, of course, there are issues here that, that intertwine, so it's not like a clean separation, right? That, uh, you could also say that uh, because of social historical issues, uh, social economic issues, um, there is structural correlation between belonging to a particular minority or disadvantaged group and also not having enough data. Uh, and and so uh, just something to think about. Also, it's about it's about who who isn't represented in your data set, and therefore is excluded just by virtue of not being in your data set. Absolutely, and I also think you know in terms of things that people are in, in uh, implementing or or using on a daily basis. For example, you know when we think about um, calling like a bank, you are always interacting with these language and speech speech uh, processing systems, and a lot of them are not really tailored to every possible accent or dialect, especially when it comes to individuals from marginalized communities. And that can also lead to a lot of frustration for the users. Um, and overall, I think one of the main things that the bias really um, re results in is a general sense of loss of trust. Um, and that can really make people avoid using the systems, which can then really prevent the AI from being trained in, in actually improving things for those communities as well. There are a lot of anxieties around generative artificial intelligence since it is being untrained, since it is being trained on large language models or LLMs that contain, that may contain biased data. So how could these forms of AI deepen systemic discrimination against marginalized communities. It's already really hard for people of color, at least in the United States, to get a mortgage. Um, communities in the global south are sort of already disproportionately not brought to the table because of the digital divide. And so I'm kind of wondering how you're seeing this in each of your respective fields, to see how you can start. Sure. Um, so I think one of the first questions to ask is, um, why is there systemic discrimination uh, why are people being disadvantaged? And oftentimes it comes down to uh, myriad reasons, but 
um, you have to think about why those reasons interact to produce, uh, to make it harder to collect data about these particular groups. So oftentimes, yes, there is a lot of uh, political, social, and economic uh, factors behind that. But really, when it manifests itself in a in a data driven environment, it's like we just don't have data because somehow it was more expensive to collect that data. Therefore, at the current cost of and of collecting data. Um, it was just not possible. And so that means that if you really want to uh, put in uh, put in effort to, to be more inclusive, that means you actually have to spend more resources to go collect the data on these people because by definition, those people um, were costly to collect data from and they were too costly for your current process. And so thinking what that means for your specific use case, for, your, for the various data sources you're using, I think is number one. Um, and then on the flip side, I also mentioned something which I call the missing stakeholder problem. I think um, you know just to just to level set and like you know we've we've seen a lot of uh, interest in in diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is great. Um, as when recent events in the U.S. have obviously amplified the need for that, but also we're seeing um, the same kinds of failure modes uh, that can happen when companies. Um, don't put them in the same room as the as the people who are making the business critical decisions, and then they're left out. Or they're not in the same room to help guide that discussion, and so are they just there for the sake of being there, uh, or are they actually part of your decision making process? Similarly, when you think about AI, are they part of the design process? Are they there to provide feedback on? Oh, this AI might have the side effect. Have you thought about that? And maybe the engineer should be thinking about that. Maybe the people who are responsible for the business process need to actually go out there and monitor what's happening on the ground, or, or you're just putting your blind faith in the data and that you have the right uh, observations in place to, to, to measure all the effects that you want. Uh, and there's, there's definitely something here about um, unintended consequences, which creates a, a systemic blind spot. Because you don't think about them, you don't put in the effort to collect data to see if something bad is happening, and then the bad thing happens. Um, so that's that's a very yeah. very when uh, failure mode that I wanted to to bring up. Um, I would just I'll, I'll limit myself to just one more comment, which is uh, uh, one of the <laughs> one of the particularly interesting things about large language models uh, is the question of who owns the data, who owns the corpus of language, and uh, I want to I want to point out that there is actually some really interesting work in the uh, indigenous ownership of language data. So when you think about corpuses of oral histories of written texts. Um, is that a collective ownership problem? And whose legal structures do you, uh, do you do you respect? So this comes up all the time when you think about indigenous rights. And maybe, I think probably my other pan panelists are, are more expert at this than I am. But who owns that data? What does responsible usage mean? Uh, what kind of compensation should people receive for, for using that data? And so this is something obviously that's coming up right now, uh, not just in the LLM space, but in like the generative art space uh, and, and copyright and who, who deserves compensation for using all of that. Um, that is that is coming to the forefront. And I think we need to think about what that means so that AI can benefit everyone. I wanted to bring you in here too, because you work with communities in the global South. So how does systemic bias look like there? Yeah, uh, I think that's a great question. I think one of the biggest challenges we see is, you know, what the data sets look like, um, because a lot of these data sets were not always collected um, like Jiao was saying, you know, making sure that all the possible stakeholders were involved. And so when we're building tools now, we really try to make sure that we are uh, going in and collecting data from all possible sources, um, especially if, you know, we're, we're trying to create um, 
a, a tool, for example, around uh, content moderation for uh, people in mar from marginalized communities and kind of conflict areas, we have to put in, even during that data collection, um, it is quite an intensive process because we have to anonymize um, everything from kind of the, the get-go. So nobody can even know who's actually been participating in that uh, data collection. So really trying to ensure that privacy is at the center of all of this and that data prote protection guidelines are ensured. Um, and a lot of this, you know, with when we think about public services, we really want to make sure that um, we're also collaborating with not just um, the, the the governmental entities, but also civil society organizations, if we're working on gender issues, women's rights organizations that are sometimes more entrenched within the communities than the government entities themselves, and actually have those kind of trusting relationships with the individuals so that we can get the best data. Because ultimately, it's really expensive to debias um, data sets. And so we want to make sure that any new data sets that are being created are really Kind of in, encompassing all possible perspectives are really trying to consider every possible data point. Um, and that's, you know, obviously going to lead into making sure that the products we're building are the most ethical that they can be. Absolutely. Amber, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, um, very little because <laughs> Judy and Gia how like <laughs> definitely hit the, hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, you know, I think that both, um, both of my co-panelists have, really underscored, you know, issues of trust. Um, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's really a double-edged sword because LLMs, you know, they reflect underlying data um, that they're trained on, which is, you know, often incomplete and biased and outdated. Um, and the training data sets, um, you know, often exclude um, data from marginalized and minority communities. Um, and, you know, because of this, um, you know, it has the risk of reflecting um, and perpetuating perpetuating um, biases that exist. Um, but on the flip side, you know, it's really it's really difficult because you know, in order to have this data um, to train, you know, there has to be consent, right, to, to collect this data. And I think that you know, especially you know, in um, you know, communities that have been historically you know marginalized and disenfranchised, you know, there is. Um, you know, lack of trust in terms of like, where is my data? Where, where are you going to get the data from, you know, to train these models? Um, and, you know, it makes me think about like, whose responsibility is it to train these models and on whose data? Um, so it's really a double-edged sword because, you know, you want these technologies to be reflective of, you know, society as a whole, but also, you know, making sure that you have the appropriate consent Thank you. I want to shift the conversation over to policy. Um, how could policies like the White House AI Bill of Rights or the EU AI Act or Brazil's new AI policy um, could help or hinder regulate this technology? And is regulation enough to mitigate AI bias? Amber, I'd like you to start with this one. Let's put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> no, sure. Sure thing. Um, so, you know, one of the things that um, that we're seeing um, in the policy space is that there is, you know, growing consensus from policymakers and civil society and industry that there needs to be some form of AI regulation. Um, so what that regulation looks like, um, what it does, how it's enforced, you know, who bears that responsibility and liability. Um, you know, if I had the answers to that, I'd probably I'd probably get paid a lot more <laughs> than what I do. But, you know, it really um, 
it really shows that there is that growing consensus. And, um, you know, in certain sectors like housing and employment, you know, education, healthcare, lending, um, like we've talked about a little bit already, you know, regulators have already been taking enforcement actions in the U.S. on AI systems and tools, um, you know, specifically in regard to, you know, discriminatory practices. And so, you know, for example, the FTC um, has already begun enforcement on AI systems that are uh, misleading um, under, you know, their unfair and deceptive um, trade practice authority. And just recently, um, like a few weeks ago or a month ago at this point, um, the FTC and CFPB, um, DOJ and EEOC released a joint statement um, that underscored that they're committed to exercising their authority um, to promote responsible innovation in AI, um, in AI systems. Um, and so, you know, regardless of what jurisdiction um, we're talking about, you know, any form um, of AI regulation has to you know, keep in mind, especially um, that there's agencies that do have expertise in these areas already. You know, it may not be that they're AI experts, but, you know, there are agencies that enforce housing um, and uh, lending and employment and all of these other things. Um, and so, you know, they have that area of expertise. And so they already have begun um, regulating AI in their respective spaces. Do you want to comment on the role of policy and maybe what the UN thinks about this? I, do, I definitely cannot speak, you know, on behalf of the UN, but um, we obviously, you know, I think <laughs> um, are very keen for countries to um, act. Um, and <laughs> I think especially with when we think about these leg legislative um, documents that are that are kind of being formulated, I think multi-stakeholder collaboration is kind of the the absolute key. Like what Amber was saying, I think it's really really important for governments to recognize that there are other experts um, that do understand these things. Um, I also think you know in general there really needs to be a change in the overall culture uh, when it comes to thinking about. Uh, ethical AI or AI regulation, really the people that are building these, these um, systems and, and tools, they should already kind of, you know, that, that first level of development should already start incorporating regulation and ensuring that they're building equitable technologies. And I think that that is obviously not um, a simple or easy solution at all, but I do think it's quite critical. And there's, you know, when you think about uh, who is building these tools, a lot of the, the times there are people from Western countries, generally white men, still, you know, if you look at the teams for most of these, most of the uh, generative AI software as well, it's really, really important that we're making sure that you know, these teams first, first and foremost look like the people that are going to be using the tools. Um, and then secondly, have this sense of accountability and transparency while they're developing the products themselves. And I think, you know, both the, the, the AI Bill of Rights as well as the EU AI Act are both really, really important um, and great steps forward. But, you know, they haven't been implemented yet. And we really need to make sure that everyone's voices are being um, taken into account during the development process of these policies as well. It's not just about um, making sure that governments are uh, are regulating these things, but really taking everyone's um, opinions into consideration. So um, I, I am clearly uh, not the policy expert here, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention <laughs> what, what what has come up in client discussions. Uh, so uh, let, first of all, like let's. 
there's a lot of talk about what is the US doing, uh, what is Europe doing as far as AI regulation. Uh, but let's be aware that this is this is a global problem and there's global groundswell. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously, the fact that uh, we have uh, someone from the UN here, I think, is testament to that. But also, uh, you know, let's let's bring up some things that maybe people may, may not have heard of. Uh, so things like India's digital um, digital rights bill, uh, sorry, the Digital India Act. Uh, so it's about data protection, but it's also about AI. It's about um, uh, reducing user harms. Uh, Indonesia is working on something called Stratness AI, which is like the national AI strategy for the uh, for the next uh, 20 years until 2045. Uh, Singapore, where I'm from, uh, uh, they just launched an AI Verify Foundation, which is meant to be a cooperative uh, uh, private pu uh, public uh, foundation uh, working on how model testing and AI testing ought to work. Uh, and this is just three of like many, many uh, uh, different countries around the world that's working on something. Um, let's not forget that China, um, you know, while maybe having its 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 uh, particular day in the in the realm of U.S. politics, is actually extremely active in uh, producing AI policy and regulation and legislation. So all of that's happening, uh, and you know, I'll, I'm just going to put that aside of like how it's happening and what is it doing and is it aligned with uh, Western democratic values. But we should acknowledge that they are doing work in this area as well. With all of that, I'll just mention one thing, which is one huge pain point for companies is this this regulatory divergence the fact that laws are different in every country or uh, laws are different in every state uh, regulations and policies are, are different the way you interact with government uh, you know and what you, what government's rights are or expectations are to transparency of what businesses are doing their accountability structures to to private citizens um, that's all different and it creates uh, enormous headaches for uh, the perhaps naive uh, customer who thinks that like, well, I built a successful business for this AI service in Europe. I'm going to expand to North America and now everything will magically work. But, you know, maybe if, if, maybe if your product is actually a, a resume screening tool or like a video interview scoring tool, uh, guess what? Like employment uh, is one of those areas where like every jurisdiction is different, even within the US, let alone across US and Europe. And uh, one should realize that that uh, that's something that is part and parcel of the industry and, and product offering that you're you're working in, and it's not something that you can just wave away by fiat. Um, I just want to quickly yeah. add to that. I think it's so important, like you said, Juha, that different countries um, make that there currently isn't really any um, uh, exact science to to how how this plays out in every single country and context. Um, and one of the things that UNDP is currently doing is actually building these AI readiness assessments through which we're actually trying to map out what a successful AI strategy uh, looks like and trying to ensure uh, trying any country that really wants to um, build an AI strategy, national strategy for themselves. We're actually going in and we're able to help them understand where they where they are at in terms of you know best practices globally and then also help them actually build this roadmap to getting there and you know obviously making sure that transparency accountability and uh, data protection are kind of all embedded throughout or throughout the, the the strategy but really i think there really isn't much consensus and we're really trying to help build that and i know Tiha was saying that you're not necessarily a policy person however you do work with technologists so and anyone can really comment but what can technologists or simple society, or as someone in the chat said, students 
can do to prevent bias when working, developing, or using AI-enabled technology? I, I guess I can I can start that. So uh, from a technologist's perspective, uh, it's uh, prevention is better than cure. It is a lot easier to fix problems at design time than uh, at production time. Uh, oftentimes, that means uh, not just thinking about uh, uh, representativeness or by potential for bias in data sets, but also in the way that you define uh, the objectives and criteria uh, for success for, for the AI system. Um, I think I'll, I'll, I'll highlight that. Uh, I think a lot of times people talk about bias in, in, in the sense of like, oh, we have imbalanced data. We don't have enough information about women in my data set for this use case or like minorities, something like that. But actually it can also be present in the definition of the of the use case itself. And that's actually more pernicious. Uh, so to, just to give a very simple example, that's not AI. So suppose you want uh, you, you want to give a written exam to your employees because it's tests like domain specific knowledge that you want all your employees to have, uh, which sounds great on paper, uh, but let's say it's only offered in English. And then you don't offer accommodations for people who are visually impaired or have writing or dyslexic, uh, you know, like any, any sort of like, uh, you know, learning disability or, or that kind of thing. So um, if you do not change the fact that the test is only offered in English in writing and no accommodations are made, all the DEI to get people through the door from uh, the disabled community, the uh, the you know the non-English speaking communities, will not help the fact that they're just going to fail the test. And so, are you mm -hmm. even defining your criteria in a way that's intrinsically biased? Is something that I would point out. Uh, and so, this is part of a larger discussion of let's fix things at design time because it's cheaper, and you can iterate through um, all the possible failure modes in a much cheaper way than if you had to fix it afterward. Um, I'll just end with one thing, which is uh, there's there's oftentimes a, a technologist pipe dream that, okay, well, we found bias in the model. Okay, fine, we'll just apply some debiasing technique and then magically the bias will go away. Um, there's actually been some uh, research in this area. Um, uh, some And my own contribution to this study uh, in, in, uh, in ML research is to is to point out that actually we can prove that most of these methods work by overfitting. So basically you found a bad example and you tell the model, don't do that next time. Make sure that you this this decision is on the is on the positive side, not the negative side for this kind of input. But what you eventually do is that you're encouraging the model to overfit on that. And so that actually could create worse outcomes on average for everyone else. So you're basically dragging and lowering the standard for everyone uh, and that's the cost that you pay for debiasing. Um, to give a very trivial example, um, if if everyone failed the exam and you hired nobody, then it's trivially fair because the same number of men and women were admitted, but that's not the outcome you want because now you've nobody got hired. Uh, so so right. like it's, it's very um, these kinds of like purely quantitative or, or metrics driven approaches to debiasing uh, can result in these kinds of uh, corner cases that sound sounds stupid to us as humans. Like, obviously we don't want the AI to do that, but from a pure mathematical definition, if that's all you're optimizing for, that could be one of the solutions that you get. Yeah, I can I can jump in um, here too. I I really, um, I like what Jihao said about um, making sure that um, you're being proactive in terms of, you know, as you're even developing the technologies, um, you know, but yeah, I would, I would say that a big thing is also making sure that, um, that there's diverse voices that are integrated all throughout the life cycle um, of the technology as well. Um, so, you know, not just in the development piece, but also, um, you know, as you're testing it, like continuing to test it, like making sure that, 
it's doing what you want it to do, um, and even checking the outputs as well. Um, so just making sure that you're checking and checking and checking again, um, and that there are, you know, um, like we talked about before, like making sure that there are those um, in the room that are going to look like the, the, the folks that are going to be impacted by the technology, which is essentially all of us, right? Um, and so making sure that, um, you know, that you're checking for those things all throughout the life cycle. Um, you know, and I think that another thing, um, you know, that we've, we've mentioned already is that, um, you know, some, some people really trust in technology a lot. Um, and they might argue that AI powered technology is, you know, less ripe of discrimination than having a human make the same decisions. You know, I think that, you know, I see this, especially like in the hiring context, um, you know, like, oh, well, you know, if we're having, you know, these decisions be made by, you know, an, a, an AI tool, then, you know, it doesn't take into account, you know, the kind of bias that someone who's, you know, an actual person who's looking at these technologies um, but really, you know, AI just reflects underlying historical biases and discrimination and outdated stereotypes. Um, and so, you know, it's really important to be careful, again, like about the types of data that's being used to train these systems um, and making sure that you're checking and checking again, like the outputs um, to make sure that it's actually doing what you want it to do. Um, so, you know, trust, but verify, you know, as you're developing these tools, making sure that um, that you're checking it and checking it again to make sure that it's actually doing, um, you know, what you intend. Awesome. Um, before we conclude, I kind of wanted to shift gears a little bit and move on from not just bias data, but potentially bias use. So imagine we are in a world where there are AI services and tools with little to no bias, utopia. Social recognition software can detect the faces of every individual equally. Everyone has the same opportunity to receive a loan from an AI-powered lender, et cetera. But how do we make sure that the way we are using AI is also fair and unbiased? How do we make sure the use of this powerful technology is kept in check by law enforcement, by schools, et cetera? Amber, I feel like you have a you would have an interesting take on this if you want to start. Oh man, <laughs> no, thanks for putting me on the spot. Uh, this is a really tough question, um, and you know I think that it's really important. Um, you know, well, I think that this would be an ideal world, um, but it's really you know I think especially in like my work um, as I've been helping companies, you know, think about their um, the way that their employees are using generative AI. Um, I've seen this a lot. Like, how do we make sure that our employees are using this in a responsible way that's not going to get us in trouble, right? Um, but I think that, you know, one of the the focuses on use cases um, is important. And, you know, a lot of jurisdictions are focused on you know, high risk use. Um, so just making sure that they also understand, like, is this actually the right way to go about um, solving this problem? And um, I don't know if, folks have, have seen it because it's hot off the press, but yesterday um, in the New York Times, uh, Senator Warren and, and Senator Graham, um, you know, they noted that these technologies are not chosen by people, <laughs> you know, and that this is like an important context to, to keep in mind, you know, when they're thinking about how these technologies are used. And so, you know, I don't have like a concrete answer for, you know, how we can make sure that people are using it in a fair and unbiased way, you know, outside of really just educating people, um, you know, because, you know, I've seen 
<laughs> like just in talking to to friends, you know, people are asking me like, what is this chat GPT thing? Like how, how can I make it, uh, how can I make it work to my favor so that I can do my job better or faster? You know, so I think it's important, like education is really key in terms of, you know, people even understanding how the technology works in the first place. Like that's step one, you know, because some people really think that, you know, this is like the end all be all solution to, to how to be more efficient. Um, and so, you know, really just educating. Um, educating and educating again to make sure that people understand how the technologies work and also that they can, you know, exacerbate um, existing um, biases. And so, you know, it's, it goes back to the collaboration piece as well. Like there's going to be people who are going to have to go out and do the education, um, just like there are those that are out doing um, the development of these technologies. Um, and so, um, and then there's companies that are going to be, you know, using it to, um, make decisions um, about people's everyday lives. And so it's really important that like policymakers and civil society and industry are going to all work together to figure out exactly what these guardrails are going to look like. Um, and it also, you know, comes down to consumers really um, being educated and being able to speak up, um, you know, when, when they see something that they don't necessarily agree with as well. Yeah, I really agree with everything Amber said. Um, I think on that education element, really focusing on even if all the data um, data sets are, are completely unbiased and all the AI is, is working um, in, in a very fair and equitable way, we still need to think about the outputs and we really need to think about the education element focusing on telling people, hey, this is how the AI is supposed to work. But if it doesn't work in this way, these may be, you know, that there are always going to be risks and to educate people on the risks of those AI systems, just to make sure that, you know, people aren't blindly following what the AI um, algorithms are, are telling them, really making sure that the education component focuses on critical thinking, critical analysis, and really helping people visualize what the potential risks um, or like misuses could be. Um, and I think the other kind of element of, you know, even in a world where all the AI systems might be really fair and unbiased, um, if they're being used by, for example, law enforcement agencies, still ensuring that the there is a lot of accountability in place and that there's also a lot of transparency to ensure that, you know, if law enforcement is using AI in a certain way, it's still not impacting certain communities more than others and also ensuring that um, ultimately we are thinking about people's privacy and civil liberties. We really want to make sure that if surveillance technologies are available, they're not being misused um, and also, and just generally keeping, I think, privacy and data protection at the center of that. Let's, let's just discard the case where uh, uh, of considering like unbiased AI because it's just it just, just doesn't exist, right? So um, with that in mind, um, if you know that, and it's fundamentally AI is statistically driven, it's probabilistic, um, then that means that there will always be errors. Now, the question is, um, are you aware of the business process uh, uh, in which you're using it? Because even if you think about passport control, if you think about police surveillance, um, it's not used in isolation. It's not like the AI is not out there automatically arresting suspicious people, right? This is being escalated for human police officers to look at and they make the call as to whether it warrants for the investigation, if it's a mistake that needs to be overridden and said like, this is a false alert. Um, and what's that whole process look like? Um, and, and from a technology perspective, I think there is a, 
um, the way that we do development, it's very like short cycle. It's very like, let's go to market quickly. Um, that, that drives a very utilitarian look at AI to say that there's a happy path. Most people fall into this class. Uh, you know, having a solution that works for this class creates the greatest good for the greatest number. I'm done. Actually, that's just the beginning. Um, and I think really people should be thinking about outliers and edge cases because guess what? Like if you are serious about inclusion, you're thinking about how marginalized groups uh, fall outside uh, of the happy path, uh, how they would otherwise fall between the cracks. And are you, are you monitoring? Are you, is there something to catch you uh, if you're in an exceptional edge case? Um, and, you know, so imagine a situation where like you, you've optimized everything for like the, 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 the base class, like the most common class, but, um, you know, maybe you, you know, there's still systemic discrimination because all the people, uh, in this particular minority group don't have the right kind of biometric passport. They can never use the automated kiosk. They always have to go talk to a manual, uh, to, to a human passport officer. And so everyone gets that gets through immigration on like the, the electronic visa, the biometric passport quickly, except you come, unless you come from these countries where like, I don't let you use the biometric passport. So that, you know, plan an extra three hours for your connecting flight. Right. So, and like, who is in that edge case and is that uh, is belonging to that edge case more likely to 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 signal membership in some sort of marginalized group is something that that uh we should be thinking about more and, and it's about catching people who fall uh fall off of the the path that it was it was intended for because that's that's oftentimes like the the assumption that leads to actual uh discriminatory impact Thank you so much. And I want to thank our incredible guest panelists for an enlightening conversation on this very critical issue. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Likewise, thank you. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show, and this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Mohammed, our social coordinator, Alison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.